Matthew chapter 3 is where we are. We're picking up where we left off last week in our study of Matthew, and we will move through, uh, through part of chapter 4 today. If you're taking notes, the title for tonight's study is Baptism and Temptation. Very simple, very straightforward, because that's exactly what we're going to see as we move through our text this evening, seeing Jesus come on the scene and start officially his earthly ministry. But before we do that, it does us well to remind ourselves of what we're studying. We're studying a book of the Bible. Matthew is the book. It is one of the Gospels. And it does us well as we study any book of the Bible to remind ourselves of what that book is about, who the author is, what the themes and the background of it are, so that we know what we're looking at, so that we know contextually what's going on. And so also, too, we know how better to apply the word that we're reading. So looking at some background of the Gospel of Matthew, we know that it was written by a man named Matthew. He was one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He also went by Levi as well, but he was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was a Jewish man, and he wrote to a Jewish audience. And the whole reason for him writing the gospel of Matthew was so to show Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the King of Kings that had come, the King of the Jews that had come, and who the Jews had missed. But but who still had opportunity as they put their faith in the Lord to follow him and to be his followers. And we see that through much of Matthew's writing as he lists out what's go, what's go, what goes on in Jesus' ministry, the fulfillment of prophecy that we see, and the main message of Jesus coming and proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was coming, that it had come, that he was bringing it with him. And if there's a central theme, a simple phrase that you could say for the theme of Matthew, it is just that, Christ the King, because that's what Matthew is seeking to show to his audience and to us as well, the audience reading and studying today. And what we learn as the church, not a Jewish church, but the Gentile church, what we learn as we read this, not from a Jewish lens, but from our perspective, what we learn is the fact that Jesus is who the Bible points him out to be, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords, and he is our Savior. And he's not only the Savior that we see in the New Testament, but the Savior that was prophesied of in the Old. And so as we study Matthew, we see Jesus, we get to know him, we get to know him as our Savior and our King but we also get to know the Bible because we see as we study this book, the Old Testament and the New Testament really come together as we see fulfilled prophecy and as we see themes from the Old Testament come into the new all through Jesus. And so it's a great book for us to study as the church. It is also what is called a synoptic gospel, meaning that it is it is to be seen together with Mark and Luke, the other two synoptic gospels, meaning that if you read all three of them together, if you study them together, you get a full picture of Jesus's life as they all hit on different aspects of him. And one day we'll study those, but tonight we're still in Matthew. So with that, let's turn now to Matthew chapter three, as we open up in verse 13 and read a portion of the text together. Where it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. 
And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for this night. God, I just praise you for any time that we as your church can gather together anywhere. And Lord, as we are here tonight, Lord, to worship you, to acknowledge that you are God, that we are not, and that, Lord, we have much to learn from you and from your word, I I pray that you would help us with that. I pray that, God, as we turn our attention to your word for a few moments this night, that, God, you would just open up the scripture to us and really teach us, really lead us into the truth that we see within it and help us to understand, God, how, Lord, it applies to our lives so that we can live it out in this world. And I thank you that you're about doing that, that you, Holy Spirit, are who teach us the deep things of God as we see in 1 Corinthians. Lord, help us to lean into that now. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we open up tonight with Jesus's baptism, as we just read. And Jesus's baptism marks for us the official beginning of his earthly ministry. And every one of the synoptic gospels, actually every one of the gospels, gives us insight into this event. But it's only Matthew's account that records for us this conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, if you were with us last week, we know from our study that John knew Jesus. He knew him personally because, well, they were second cousins. They were second cousins because Elizabeth and Mary, John's mom and Mary, Jesus's mom, well, they were first cousins. And so that's how that works. So they knew each other. And that's important for us to understand as we pick up within this conversation, because John has some notable apprehension for you note takers towards Jesus's request as he comes to be baptized. You see, John, having known Jesus and having coming, him coming towards him to be baptized, would find it strange and a bit awkward that Jesus would be doing this. And the reason is because of why John is out there in the wilderness of the Jordan. You remember from last week, John is the forerunner for Jesus Christ. He is the forerunner for the Messiah, as was prophesied for in Malachi and in Isaiah. And as he was out there, he preached a very simple yet very powerful and profound message Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we went over last week how repent is a very strong word. It's one that we throw around quite often as the church, but it's one that we need to always remember exactly what it means. It means to stop, to turn around, and go the opposite direction of where you were going. It could also mean to change one's mind and then act according to that change. And that's the message that John was preaching there at the Jordan. He was preaching there, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand to the people of Israel who were coming from all of that area. And this was a profound message for them because again, the kingdom of heaven they were looking for and the kingdom of heaven they thought they were already a part of. They were already shoe-ins for it because of their bloodline, because of their adhering to the law and their traditions. They believe that, hey, as the kingdom comes, we're going in just because of who we are. And John's like, no, no, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He turned their whole belief system upside down saying, hey, it's not your self-sufficiency. It's not your bloodline. It's not who you are. Your heart is off. You need to stop, turn, and go a different direction. And that was the message there that John was giving. And many came to be baptized. We see that in the earlier parts of chapter 3, that many multitudes were coming to him and were repenting and being baptized, having a heart change that was now ready 
for the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was bringing with him to come. And then here comes Jesus onto the Jordan, up to John, and says, hey, man, I want to be baptized. And John's like, no. <laughs> like, that's, 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 what are you talking about? Because the message that he was giving was to sinners. It was to those that needed to repent. And John knew Jesus. He knew him because he was, again, the forerunner for him, both prophetically and personally. He knew Jesus. He knew that he was there telling of the Messiah coming, the one who was bringing within the kingdom of heaven. And so he was like, no, you, you don't need to do this. He also knew him personally as second cousin Jesus, who didn't sin, who didn't do anything wrong. So he's like, no, I, I don't need to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And he there has apprehension towards that. We see Jesus say to him, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. Basically just saying, hey, Jesus, you're, you're off, man. You've got this backwards. But Jesus assures John that there is need for him to do this, that there is a need for this to happen. And it's good for us to know this as well and to look and to answer the question, what is the reason that Jesus insisted on being baptized? What is Jesus's reason for coming to John and though he was without sin, being baptized there along with others? Verse 15, Jesus says, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what he is simply saying is that this act is necessary for the completion of my mission. Jesus was on a mission. He was on a mission from the Lord and he came to the earth. And what you're going to notice and what we're going to see as we study and as you study the Gospels is everything that Jesus does is in accordance with his mission. Everything that he abstains from is also in accordance with his mission, not being derailed. And what we see here is this is something that was necessary for the completion of Jesus's mission on earth. But why was it necessary? You see, Jesus was a Jew. And there within the Levitical law, there was nothing that spoke of baptism there for Jews. Baptism was for Gentiles, you see. In that culture, as Gentiles would want to there convert to Judaism, they would have to be cleansed. And they would have to be cleansed and circumcised and baptized into the Jewish faith. Jesus was a Jew. So he didn't need to be baptized into Judaism, nor did he have sins to repent of. So he didn't need to be baptized into a baptism of repentance either. So why was it necessary for him to do so? Why was it necessary for Jesus to there fulfill this step in his mission as he, could, as he could continue on? Well, quite simply, what he says there is he says, Permit it not to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus here, speaking of the overall mission of saving sinners and to save sinners, he needed to identify with them. He needed to identify with sinners, and he had already done so with his humanity as coming as a baby. He was born as a baby. He didn't come as a full-grown man. He didn't come as just ready there to say, hey, let's get this over quick. So he shows up, dies really fast, and then raises from the dead. Like he came as a baby so as to identify with what it's like to grow up, what it's like to grow up in a fallen world, to have things come your way, to have hardships, to feel what we feel as humans he was identifying with us. And he does so throughout all of his life, living fully God and fully man. And so to be baptized was another identifying factor for him towards us. He also needed to identify with and understand this tonight. 
and exemplify for humanity the act of walking in newness of life. You see, the symbolism of baptism is just that. It is that dying of the old and the raising of the new. And we know that Jesus, as he goes to the cross and as he dies, he goes to the grave and he raises to new life. He is resurrected. That's what we experience as we are saved. As we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we identify, we are baptized into the same walk as Jesus, where our old person has died and our new person is now walking forward. And that's, that's the picture that we see in baptism. As you have been baptized, perhaps, what it is is you are making your faith known. And you say, hey, I'm following Jesus. The old is gone. He's buried. He's gone away. Out of the water comes the new, ready to walk forward in newness of life. And Jesus here is exemplifying that. Though he had never sinned up to this point, though he will never sin after this point, Jesus is showing, hey, this is what I came for. I came to bring new life. And he's exemplifying how that happens by putting to death, by putting away the old and the new coming out and walking forward in new life. And that is why he there says, hey, it's necessary for me to do this, John. It's necessary for you to baptize me, that we would fulfill all righteousness, that you would see this is part of the plan, and this is an example of what I'm here to do. And so Jesus there is baptized because of that. And he's baptized there by John at the Jordan. And as he does so, we've seen John's apprehension, Jesus' reasons that get him to baptism. But then after that, we see heaven's agreements Heaven's agreement, and I love this, the scene that you see, and there's some points and parts in the Bible that you read it, and you're just like, that's good. This is one of those. Or you read it there, it says, as Jesus there comes out of the water, it says that the heavens opened, and that the Spirit, and understand that is the Holy Spirit, comes down in the form of a dove and lights there on Jesus. And then a voice, as if that wasn't amazing enough, a voice there as the heavens are parted speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That voice being, of course, from the father. And this scene, again, again, without explaining it at all, is just amazing in and of itself. You're just like, oh, this is, this is so cool to read this. And I just love portions of the Bible where we read it, there's power within it. It just reminds us that the Bible is living and active, that it is not just a book about old stories and old people that we glean wisdom from. No, this is the word of God talking about the moving and power of God. And it's just so cool to see things like that. And as we read here, this is also for you Bible students and any of you who are note takers to know that this is one of the best proof texts within the Bible for the Trinity. You see, the word Trinity that we believe speaks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are all together equal and all together equal in nature and character, but yet distinct in their, in their operation. Hey, that word Trinity, you're never going to find it in the Bible. And that trips some people up in the same way that rapture not being in the Bible trips some people up. But you know, Bible's not in the Bible either, but we believe in the Bible, as are some other things. And so don't get tripped up by the fact that the Trinity, that word is not there because we see it explicitly throughout. And this is one of the best points for it. As we see there, God the Son, Jesus Christ there in the water, coming out of the water, God the Holy Spirit coming and alighting on him as a dove, and God the Father speaking out, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well 
please. The Trinity is there, and we can see it. So if you're ever with someone, they're like, where's the Trinity in the Bible? You can be like, ah, I got you, Matthew chapter 3. And then they're going to say, explain it. You're going to be like, I can't, so deal with it. <laughs> and your pastor can't either, so don't, don't, don't point him to me because I can't either. I'm going to be like, well, they're three and one, they're together, they're different. Uh, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven. <laughs> so there you go. But as we move on, what we see here is this amazing scene is here before us. Notice again with me, and we need to key in on this, what God the Father says to Jesus. And I've said it a few times, but it's so good to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And hearing that, we who are here on a Wednesday night, who have probably read the book of Matthew before, who know the story that Jesus is doing well, he's going to do well all the way through, we know, yes, God the Father should be pleased with Jesus. He is pleased with his son. But I want you to take a second, if you can, and imagine you've never read the Bible before. Imagine you've never read this, you don't know the story, or you're one of those multitudes, one of those of the multitudes that's there on the bank of the Jordan, and you are watching this, and you're like, what is happening right now? <laughs> like this guy was just arguing about getting baptized, and he got baptized, and then the heavens exploded. Like, what is going on? You would be just, it would be crazy. And as you would hear this, you would say, who is this guy? Who is this guy that the Lord, who's speaking from heaven, is well pleased in? Because understand, up to this point, Jesus has done nothing publicly. He has not said anything. He's, not, he's, he's only talked to John at this point. He has not preached a sermon. He's not healed anybody. That's next week as we get deeper into chapter 4. He doesn't have disciples following him. Like, he is this guy who has come out of obscurity in all ways to the banks of the Jordan and is baptized by his second cousin. And then the heavens declare that God the Father is well pleased with him. And that's so amazing to think about if you can for the first time and think really that what God the Father is pleased with is, indeed, he's sovereign. He knows that Jesus is going to take care of everything because God's God and we know it. He's omniscient. But even more cool is what he's doing. He's testifying to the fact that he's well-pleased in who Jesus is up to this point. He's well-pleased in the fact that Jesus up to this point has lived a life identifying with humanity well. That he is able to, at this point, fulfill all righteousness or take this step to continue to fulfill all righteousness by being baptized as someone who doesn't need to repent, as someone who has done no wrong. And it's amazing for us to think about it, and I, I pray that you would think that through and pray it in. Because for us, it's, it's a daunting question, but could the Lord, looking at your life, say, hey, I'm well pleased? Could the Lord look at your life, public and private, and say, yeah, I'm well pleased with what you're doing? And in public, you know, we make, we make, a, we make a point to put our best foot forward because we don't want to fall on our face. But who you are in reality is who you are in the dark. Who you are in reality is who you are when no one's looking. And I find myself so challenged this, this, this morning as I was opening this up and studying, and I came across this and was thinking about that. I'm like, man, like if the Lord was to speak right now to all of y'all about me, or to y'all, or to me about y'all, or just in general. Like it's amazing to think about here at this moment that Jesus could he said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And please understand me that God is pleased with you as you are his. He loves you. He looks at you and sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But does your life reflect that, public and private? 
Does your life reflect that of pursuing the Lord when you're around people and when you're not? When you're out in front or when you're back in, in, in and by yourself? It's a daunting question, but it's a question that I was challenged with today. And so now you are too. And we need to be, as those who are following the Lord, to say, Lord, could you say of me when no one's looking, hey, I am pleased. Are we pursuing him always out in front and when we're alone? It's a searching question, but it's also a question that leads well into and appropriately asked as we come to our next portion of the text tonight. As we've seen Jesus's baptism, next what happens immediately as he's getting ready to start his public ministry is he is led into a time of temptation. And as we see here in chapter four, some interesting things and many things to glean from, we see an example in Jesus that I'm very excited about, and we'll talk about that as we get to the end. But let's read the whole event of his, of his temptation, starting there in chapter four, verse one, where it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. And now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up unto the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hand they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up onto an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all share about the temptation of Jesus there within the wilderness. And all of them share insight into why he went into the wilderness. And this is important for us to, to, to key in on. Where across the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice because the Holy Spirit drove him there. It says explicitly that the Spirit drove him there. And it's important that we understand that tonight and take time to unpack this a bit because what we see with Jesus's temptation is that it was God-ordained. It was a God-ordained event that was to take place in Jesus's ministry. And verse one says it very plainly there. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As Jesus here begins his earthly ministry, he's baptized, it's an amazing moment, and then he's immediately drove into the wilderness. I mean, imagine that. That's, you know, start ministry, everybody, like baptism, amazing, all right, to the desert. That's where you're going, and the devil's there for you. So anyways, he's driven by the Holy Spirit into the, into the wilderness, and he fasts there for 40 nights. And the Bible tells us that is the specific reason why he's there, to be tempted there, to be tested by the devil. Now, that begs the question for any of us who want to know the Bible, why? Like, you know, why, why is this the case? Why did this happen? Well, the simple answer, for the same reason that Jesus was born as a baby. 
The same reason that Jesus grew up as a young boy, the same reason that Jesus lived in a fallen world, the same reason that as we just looked at that Jesus was baptized so as to help identify with those that he came to save. So as to identify with those that he came to this earth to know and to know our and everyone else's weakness as individuals who are living in this fallen world. And so what happened is the Holy Spirit, after he's baptized, drives them into this wilderness for this time of testing so that Jesus can be a better, uh, one who better relates to us. And also to provide an example, to provide an example for us as he identifies with our weakness, provides an example for us that, hey, you don't have to give in to temptation. You can withstand it. And we see all of this throughout this text. And God set up Jesus to be driven into the wilderness again, to fast and to pray, and to, at his weakest point, be approached by Satan to go through this. And as we move forward, there's a clarifying statement and one that we need to note and need to make sure that we know as we look at this, because it's important for us not only here with this, but also it's important for us as we walk in this world. It needs to be known that it was God ordained that Jesus went into this wilderness, but his tempting was not God inflicted. It's very important for you to understand that it was God ordained that he went into the wilderness, but his temptation was not God inflicted. Notice again what verse 1 of chapter 4 says. It says that then Jesus was led by the Spirit, the by is very important there, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, but it was the devil by which he was to be tempted. And it's important that we realize that. It's important because it shapes how we view the Lord and the Bible and what it says about testing and temptation to sin. Because understand, though God allows the temptation of Jesus, he is not the one who inflicts it. He's not the one who sends the temptation or who tempts Jesus directly, nor who tempts us as followers of Jesus. The Bible is clear that temptation does not come from the Lord, nor does sin. What we know from James chapter 1, verse 13 and 15, it'll be on the screen, is this, that it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, the Bible shows us that sin begins in the heart by what we desire in our flesh. If we don't have it, if we war and want it, then that's where sin starts. It starts within us. And what happens after that is Satan, who keys in on that, tempts us to act on those desires. And as it's conceived, as it grows, as we do it, it brings forth death, whether it be physical, spiritual, whatever. It brings forth death. And the Lord, who is sovereign and in control over all, we have to believe that because that's what we see explicitly within the Word of God, is we know fully that God allows that to happen. That God allows the testing, He allows the temptation to come our way. We have to understand that and know that because God is God and God is over all. He is sovereign over all. He allows that to happen. And so in the same way here, God sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, but He is not the one who tempts Jesus. And as I tell you that, 
God did not tempt Jesus, that God ordained this event of tempting and allows it in your life and my life as well, that thought might ruffle you a bit. I don't know if you've heard that before. That thought as you think through it might ruffle you a bit, might play and mess with your American Christianity worldview a little bit on the idea that God would allow bad things to happen to you or that God would allow things to come your way that are too big for you. You know, there's a lie, a couple of lies propagated throughout the church out there. One of them is that if you give your life to Jesus, I've told you this before, I will always tell you this, if you give your life to Jesus, then your life is going to be easy. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And if you have friends that have told you that, get rid of them. You need new friends. Just ditch them, man. But another lie that is propagated within the church is that God will never give you something or more than you can handle. That is also a lie. God will lead you into places and spaces and bring you up against things that are too big for you to handle. We see that explicitly throughout the Bible. We see examples of that. You see David. I mean, just out of the gate, that's an easy one, a, a, a giant. Too big for him to handle, right? The Bible says that David was ruddy and good looking. It means he was little and he looked good, but he was, he was a little guy. He was smaller than all of his brothers and Goliath was, you know, a giant. So too big for him to handle. And he had to lean into the Lord and trust the Lord to lead him and guide him. Elijah is another great example. Elijah, he's there on Mount Carmel with the 400 prophets of Baal, and they've been screaming and asking Baal to send fire all day. Of course, he does it because he's not real. And then Elijah steps up, and he there puts the, the sacrifice in the altar. He dumps water all over it. And then he's like, God, you got to show up. And he does. It's amazing. Gideon is another great example. The early church is a great example. You think about the, the, the early church and the movement of the early church with the persecution there, the martyrdom of Stephen. They had a bigger task, the great commission that we see given to all the church that is bigger than what we can handle. And God is about doing that. God is about leading us into places and spaces and giving us too much to handle because what it does is it drives us to him. What it does is it drives us to his feet. It drives us to his word where we realize that all we have is the Lord and he leads us in how to take on what's in front of us. He leads us in how to navigate the world that we live in. He leads us in to navigate the places and spaces of testing that he allows to come into our lives that we would be shaped, that we would be grown, that we'd be emboldened and ready to go forward stronger on mission for the Lord. And that's what we see here exemplified for us in Jesus. So we see exemplified for us in Jesus. And as he was there identifying and to identify with us and so as to help us, we need to understand it's going to happen to us. We need to understand that God will allow temptation and testing to come into your life. He will ordain that to happen so that you grow in him, so that you are driven to him, so that you are driven to his word because he knows at the end of it, you're ready for what's next. You're ready for more of what he has in your life. And we are to despise that. You know, Jesus doesn't kick against this. Jesus, as he moves in his ministry, as he walks and lives in this world, these places and spaces, these little tick marks that he has to do to fulfill his mission, he doesn't kick against them. The closest he gets to that is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, Lord, if, this, if there's any other way, let it pass, but yet not my will be done but yours. That's the closest I think we could see him get to that. But other than that, he never kicks. He goes to the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. He's there weak and vulnerable, knowing that, hey, his heavenly father who's well-pleased with him, 
is allowing that every step of the way. And then is allowing Satan at that vulnerable, hungry moment to come in, which is exactly what we see there as we pick up with his first temptation. There what we see in, uh, in, verse, in verse two, he said he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry, the greatest understatement in all of the Bible. And really what it means, you know, I, I play fun, but in fasting, and I don't know if you fast or you have fasted, the Bible says that you should. So, you know, think about that, pray that in and seek the Lord. Um, but if you're going to fast for long periods of time, talk to a doctor because that's wise. Also, um, if you fast, the first few days, in my experience and others that I know as well, um, the first few days are awful, and they are. You wake up, and you're like, I'm so hungry. And you go to eat, and you're like, can't do it. And your body's like, why not? And you're just like, ah, because I can't. And your flesh is just warring and warring. And like two or three days of that, it's, it, it, it's awful. But then like day four, five, six, I've only gone to like eight before. They're, it's not as bad. And from what I understand, around like 10, 12 to, you know, to, to like 14, your body kind of comes back like, hey, I don't like this. Let's, let's, let's do this some more. But after that, it shuts up until day 40. Because on day 40, your body is literally about to eat itself. Your body, your hunger pains come back a thousand fold because your body is about to turn on itself and actually eat its own organs so as to stay alive. And so when it says that Jesus is hungry, it's not just that he hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's about to die. His, his body is about to be just, it's about to turn on itself. And it's at that moment that we see Satan come. It's that moment that we see Satan come on the scene. And just a side note for that, Satan, just a reminder, hates you. And he hates your soul. And he does not care where you are with your mental state. He does not care where you are or about what kind of day you had, or where you're feeling, he's not going to take it easy on you. And that's exemplified for us here. And so let's not be surprised when things come our way, when we're beat down and we're tired, and then in comes the temptation to give a little bit, to compromise here, to open up the computer, to talk to that person, to you know, go to the fridge and grab a few or to call someone and ask for you know, a special delivery of something, whatever it may be. Don't be surprised when you're down and out for Satan to come and try to get you. Don't be surprised at that because that's exactly what we see his tactic is here. His tactic is to destroy. And he seeks to do that here as Jesus is there hungry in the desert. This tempter came to him. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And essentially what he's telling him here is, since you are who you say, or since you are the son of God, he doesn't deny who he is. He says, you can take matters into your own hands. What you can do is these stones right here, I know who you are, Jesus. I know you have the ability. You can turn these stones into bread. So do it. You're hungry, go for it. If you're who you say you are, then do it. And notice what Jesus answers. And this is key for us all tonight. He answers that, that, that challenge, that temptation with the word of God. Quoting there Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what Jesus is doing here is not just refusing food. He's not like, oh, I'm fasting, so no, I can't do that this time. He is saying essentially, look, here's the deal. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, that's what I live off of. That's what drives me. And right now, his command was to there be in the desert and to fast. And he could take matters into his own hands. He could, he said, I, I, yeah, I can do that, but that's not what I'm 
supposed to do at this moment. What he was doing was waiting on the word of his father to tell him what was next. What he was doing was waiting on the Lord to say, hey, now you can do this. Now is the time. And Jesus exemplifies that throughout all of his ministry. Throughout all of the ministry of Jesus, he is in line with the Father. He's in line with who is leading him. And that's where we need to be as well. Understanding that our lives are to be according to God's plan for our life. God's overall plan for our life to glorify him, to worship him, and to show him, on, show him out in this world as we live on mission, but also for you specifically. And understand that in this world, we have temptation that comes our way that says, hey, yeah, I, I know where you're supposed to be going, but hey, isn't this great? Hey, I, I know what you could do, but hey, this is fun. This could feel good. This tastes good. This looks good. And what we need to do in that moment is be like, yeah, yeah but the words of God, that's what I need to follow. Not what the word says is in, it, it, not what the, the world says is, is right or is fun for a season or would satisfy even now. Because no doubt the bread would satisfy Jesus' hunger. But he would have been stepping out of the line and out of the word of what the Lord had given him at that time and what his father had directed him on. And so he says there, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In doing so, he's pointing to the fact, again, he's not operating on his own terms, but he's operating in the plan of his father. Well, Satan doesn't stop there, and he won't, just another word for us, that he doesn't stop, which is that. Verse five, it says that he tempts him there. And what I want you to notice, and I miss saying this, is that as he comes and tempts him, he tempts him, he tempts Jesus where he's at. He tempts where he's at, physically first, but then he also tempts him relationally um, there in verse five, where it says that then the devil took him up onto the holy city. He set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to them there, hey, if you are the son of God, then cast yourself off. And notice what Satan does this time there. What he does is he throws in, he sprinkles in some truth. He sprinkles in the word. He says, he shall give his angels charge over. He says, for it is written, in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, he is quoting scripture there. He's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. He is omitting some very key parts of that verse. And what he's doing is he's taking the word that Satan knows, and he's trying to turn Jesus's game back on himself. And he's like, hey, it's written that the Lord will take care of you. And certainly you're his son, so he's definitely going to take care of you. You cast yourself off of here, your dad's going to catch you. You throw yourself off the pinnacle, man, you're not going to get hurt. And he hits at Jesus relationally there. He says, hey, since you're the son of God and you're on this mission and God's leading you, hey, if you cast yourself off there, he's going to catch you. He's going to take care of you. And he tempts Jesus there relationally. And he tempts him there with this half-truth from the word, much in the same way that he did with Eve in the garden. As he goes to her and says, did God really say? Did God really say that if you eat of it, that you'll die? And she's like, well, yeah, he did. And he's like, that's not really what's going to happen. And it's such an important word for us tonight to know that Satan, indeed, he knows the truth. He absolutely does. To say that he doesn't is lying to ourselves. To say that Satan is not a formidable foe is to lie to ourselves. He absolutely is. He's not as strong as God. The world does a bad job of posing him as opposite to God. He's not. God it could just obliterate him immediately. We see that throughout the, throughout the Bible. 
But we need to understand that he is a formidable foe. He is someone that we don't need to deal with in and of our own strength. We need the Lord to do so. But, and, but with him being that foe, he knows the word, he knows the truth, and he knows how to use it in a way that is twisted. And so to that, we need to know the truth and know how to use it properly. Meaning that we need to know the word of God. We need to know it within its context. What he does here is he takes the word out of context. And there's many within this world that do that. There are teachers, there are pastors, there are just people within the world who will throw Bible verses at you and say, ah, this, this is the truth. And you're like, no, it's the truth, but you're using it, you're wielding it the wrong way. And to do that, you have to know the truth. You have to be familiar with the truth. You have to know what's real, where it is. So you need to read your Bible, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but every day. And that's just, that just is what it is. It's that simple. Read your Bible, pray every single day. Because if you don't, when the fate comes your way, you're dead in the water. You're more easily tripped up. And so we have to be in the word. We have to know the truth in its entirety so as to be able to combat when truth is thrown at us out of context or skewed. And Jesus, what he says, he says again, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And what he's doing, he's quoting from the word, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 there. And he speaks there saying, no, that would not be, you know, relationally right. In fact, you know, he's like, that would be testing the Lord. And that's not what we are to do. And so Satan tempts him there physically. He tempts him relationally. And the last way that he tempts him is he tempts him missionally. He tempts him there missionally, and Satan, who the Bible shows us, understands tonight, is the ruler of this world. And I know that that sounds heretical, but please understand me. The world that we live in is fallen, and God has, in its fallen state, it is turned over to Satan, who is the one who rules and who drives this world. We see that throughout the Bible. We see in the book of Revelation that as Jesus comes and takes the scroll, that he is redeeming the world from its fallen state and from the ruler of this world, who is Satan. And as the ruler of this world, what he does is he takes Jesus to this mountain and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. He shows them to him. How he does it, I don't know, but he shows them to him. And he says, hey, these kingdoms, I'll give them to you. These kingdoms, I'll give them to you if you worship me. Now understand that Jesus, who knew the word, and Satan, who knew the word as well, knew already that the kingdoms of the world, well, they belong to Jesus anyways. We see that in the Messianic Psalm of Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Well, that is a messianic song that promises there that the kingdoms of this world belong to the Messiah. They belong to him. And Jesus would have known that. He would have been like, yeah, I, I, they're mine already, buddy. But what Satan does in this moment is he says, you can have them without the hardship. Missionally, I know why you're here. I know where you're going. But you can have all this if you'll just worship me. You can have the easy way out, man. I can give you all this. And it was a lie. It was a temptation there to Jesus. And what it did is it tempted him in every single way. It tempted him missionally. It tempted his humanity. It tempted him to where he had here this easy way out, this ability to take what was already his and already do him, but without enduring and finishing the mission the way that, again, he had agreed upon and the way that would have completed the mission the right way. And he says there, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall not, you, you shall worship the Lord your God, <coughs> excuse me, and him only shall you serve. They're quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, using the word there against Satan again. 
And what I love about this is that, that is the, as this final temptation ends, Satan, Satan goes away. Satan bails out. And please understand that what we see here is, a, is another little truth for us to be encouraged by. And that is the fact that as we resist temptation, as we lean into the Lord and lean into the Word of God and use that, that Satan will come against us. But as we give the truth, well, there's nothing that he can bring against that. As we give the truth, Satan has nothing to do but to flee. We see there in James that as we resist the devil, he flees from us. As we resist him, but as we resist him in the Lord and resist him the right way, that is how and when he will flee. Not when we try to do it just in our own strength or our own cleverness. But we see that exemplified for us here that as this final temptation ends, Satan bugs out and their angels come and they minister to Jesus. And as we look here at the temptation of Jesus and remember that God there sent him into the wilderness to be tempted, what we need to remember is that this is given to us to be an example. An example of a reality that we don't like sometimes. An example that we don't like that God allows, again, hard things to come into our lives that leads us into spaces and places where we're going to be tested, where we're going to be tempted, where things, hardship will come our way. Things, again, that are even too big for us. God will absolutely give you stuff that is too much for you to handle because it drives you to him. It drives you to him because you know that in and of yourself, you can't handle it. In and of yourself, you cannot beat the sin that is coming at you. You cannot beat the temptation. You cannot beat the enemy that's coming at you. We need to know that tonight and we need the Lord to help us, to lead us and his word to be our guide every step of the way. And that's what this shows us tonight as we see Jesus there embarking on his ministry, as he embarks to start his ministry there being baptized and there being tempted in the wilderness. He gives us example of what life with him looks like, that it is new life, that as we go under the water in baptism and come up, that is a representation of what we're walking in, new in him, which is what salvation is. We are new in Jesus. And he came to give that. Also, too, we see the example in his temptation of the fact that this Christian life, we will be led into places and spaces of hardship at times so as to grow, and we need to lean into the Lord. And both of these, what they do for us is they bring out a truth that we need to key in on, think through, and pray in as we walk out of here tonight. Because what we see tonight in the baptism and temptation of Jesus are examples of him identifying with us and proving to us that he is there and understanding as we, are, as we are walking in this world about what we're going through. See, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, they say this, For we do not have a high priest, they're speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, what we learn from the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, especially within the temptation, I glean so much from this and so much confidence in the Lord in this, is the fact that Jesus is not far off and unable to understand what you're going through. And sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes we feel that no one in the world, and Satan loves for you to feel this way, that no one in the world knows what you're going through, that you are alone, that you are isolated and by yourself, 
No one's ever sinned the way you have. No one's ever failed the way you have. And no one ever will. You're the only one who's done that. You're the only one who struggles with that specific sin. You're the only one who struggles with bitterness or with gossip or lust or substance. You're the only one. And understand that in a room of many, you might be the only one who's struggling with that. But with your Savior, you stand with one who knows exactly what it's like to be tempted and to overcome. It says there that again that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We believe that Jesus is our Savior who never sinned in one point or space of his life, but that does not mean that he did not have that opportunity put before him, that he was not tempted to do so. And he resisted in the power of the Lord and by the word. He there resisted that temptation and did not give in to that sin and provides for us an example, an example that we can too say no to sin and also the confidence of someone, our Savior, in our corner who's there to show us and stand with us as we do. Say, hey, you know what? I know what you're going through. You feel like giving in right now? I did as well. You feel like giving in right now? Hey, I'm here to help you with that. I sympathize with that. And that's so good for us to know tonight because, again, what we sometimes do is we think about Jesus. Again, he's perfect, and he absolutely is perfect. But we think, hey, if I'm the only one who's going through this, no one around me is going through this, then no one's going to understand me. I might as well just dive off into it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If no one else in the world knows what you're going through, I know what you're going through, and I have provided for you an example and a way of escape in me so as not to give in to that and sin. The question is for us whether or not we'll realize that and take advantage of it. Take advantage of the access that we have, as it says in verse 16 there, to run boldly to the throne, to run boldly to him, knowing that we don't go to him and just say, hey, here's my issues. And he's like, oh man, that's crazy. I would never do something like that. Or to be like, get away from here. No, he's like, I'm here. I'm here to help you. I'm here to lead you. I'm here to guide you every step of the way. Understand tonight, friends, that we have a Savior who's standing ever at the right hand of the Father, who is there for us, who saved us and is with us as we walk. And he walks with us with understanding. But you and I, we need to realize that and realize that as he understands, he also commands us to follow him. That as he understands, he also says there, hey, I'm here with you, but I want to lead you out of that. I don't want to be you, and I won't walk with you further in it. I want to lead you out of it. And that's where we have to make the decision. Are we going to run boldly to the throne and seek help? Or are we just going to be like, I know help's there, but I'm going to keep on anyway. The decisions are is there, but don't think that Jesus is far off, doesn't know what you're going through, and can't help you. Because he can, he's there, and he wants to. Let's pray.